Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Terry Wingham. Terry is the CEO and founder of A Fresh Chapter. She believes that people are not defined by the most difficult parts of their story, and she is passionate about helping others redefine and reclaim their lives, whether living with or beyond cancer. Terry is a committed global health advocate who also loves photography, travel, hiking, and any opportunity to create a meaningful connection with others. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Terry, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes this show possible. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I am really looking forward to talking to you today. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Now, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned that you felt like you were waiting to get breast cancer in your 20s. Can you talk a little about that? Be happy to share a bit of my story. Um, so I found out that I was uh, when I was 19 years old that I had the BRCA1 gene mutation. And my family was one of the first 10 families in Canada studied um, for this gene mutation. My uh, paternal grandmother and two of her sisters both had ovarian cancer in the 80s. And so my family was very lucky that we got access to this study. And I found out when I was 19, I was high risk. Uh, and my second cousin got diagnosed at 27. So I started getting screened at 23. And so twice a year, I was at the cancer agency surrounded by cancer patients, um, getting testing and just sort of living with this fear that cancer was on my doorstep. And so it's kind of like a blessing and a curse, right? Because here you have this information that maybe you can do something with, but then you're living in fear. It was such a contradiction. You know, I felt really grateful, especially now when I think back, I feel so grateful that I got access to screening that so many people don't get access to. I, you know, got sort of the best of the best. I had MRIs once a year and mammograms once a year. And so that was such a fortunate element of my story because my cancer was caught early, but it was also really terrifying. You know, I'd always wanted to get married and have kids and sort of was trying to balance dating and going to college with this fear that cancer was going to arrive sooner than later. And so I was also navigating these discussions twice a year with my genetics oncologist, you know, suggesting that I hurry up and have kids um, and so that I could get my breasts removed. And that was really tricky at 25, 26, 27. It wasn't easy to date me <laughs> in that era because I was in just such a hurry for my life to start. 
That makes so much sense. And so what did you do from there? I mean, did you just get screened? Did you change any? I mean, you were so young. So my guess is they didn't really explain to you that maybe you can change the way you're living or, you know, to to hopefully avoid getting cancer. No, there was no kinds of discussions like that. I mean, it was the late 90s into the 2000s. Nobody was talking about, at least not that I was exposed to, talking about sort of other factors um, other than, you know, eat well and exercise, just sort of general factors. And so, you know, I just did my best to live my life. And if I'm honest, I tried to forget about it in between my appointments. And so I would have a lot of anxiety in the lead up to a test and then waiting to get the results. And then I would just put it out of my mind for the next five months until I had the next uh, appointment coming up. And so I really thought, you know, in October, September of 2009, that I had my standard MRI that I got once a year. And I got a call afterwards saying they saw the screen lighting up more than usual. And they wanted me to come back in for an uh, MRI guided biopsy. And I was really terrified to go in for that appointment. But as they were pulling me out of the machine, uh, the radiologist said, you know, the, the screen didn't light up as much, so maybe it's nothing. So I really thought it would be fine. And then five days later, I got a call from my genetics oncologist saying that they'd found cancer. So I was really shocked because I'd been so nervous and almost prepared for it after that first MRI. But then when they did the biopsy and said, you know, it's not looking, it's not lighting up the way that it did last time. So we'll probably see you in six months. I really was shocked to find out that it was in fact cancer. Uh, I'm sure. And how old were you when you got that diagnosis? I was 30 years old at the time. So yeah, it's young. You have your whole life ahead of you. You know, you mentioned when you were going through treatments, you felt very well supported. And well, first, I'd love to hear just a little bit about what kind of treatment you needed, you know, what the stage was and all that. And then just speak a little bit about how that was for you and, and the support you did get. Yeah, I was diagnosed um, end of October 2009, and they first did a lumpectomy and a lymph node dissection. So through that lumpectomy, they were able to identify that it was a grade three tumor, so the most aggressive type of tumor, but they thought the cancer was stage one because my lymph nodes came back clear. And so what they recommended was that I do four rounds of chemotherapy. So I started that in 2010. And then after that, they said, look, you have two choices. You can either do a radical double mastectomy and reconstruction, or you can do radiation and you can stop at radiation for now. But given your history of uh, the BRCA1 gene mutation, there's a high risk that you'll get another breast cancer. And so if you do the double mastectomy and reconstruction, you can skip radiation. But you, we, we are really recommending that you move forward with that surgery now. Otherwise, there's a high likelihood you'll be back here in the not so distant future, which was terrifying for me. So I opted for the double mastectomy and had that in May of 2010. Okay. And so you did that and then you didn't need anything else. I just did that. And then I had uh, sort of the second stage of the reconstruction a few months later, you know, and in Canada at the time, I don't know if it's changed at all, but I really didn't get much more screening from the cancer agency. I got referred back to my primary health care doctor within a year or two. And outside of sort of manual breast exams, they stopped screening me. So I haven't had a scan since then, um, other than some preventative surgery I had on my fallopian tubes, again, to reduce my risk. 
but so far, knock on wood, I feel healthy and I think I'm fine and that's um, exciting. But I didn't understand as a 20 something or even a 30 year old, I didn't understand that once you had cancer once, there was no guarantee you wouldn't have a recurrence. You know, I didn't understand that that's how cancer worked. I just thought I'll get diagnosed early, I'll be fine. And, you know, there's a 90% chance that I will be. And so I'm holding on to that. But I did not understand that there was some risk that it would come back in my 20s because it was just all very foreign to me to be navigating that as a young person, dealing with a not a definite but a risk of cancer. I'm sure. And then so you did what you needed to do. And then what? What went on for you after that? As you were mentioning earlier, I felt like through treatment, I felt really well supported. Um, My immediate family didn't live in Vancouver. That's where I was living at the time. They lived 10 hours north, but I had an aunt who came with me to all of my appointments. I had really close friends that brought me groceries and came and checked on me. Ironically, um, I went through treatment during the Vancouver Winter Olympics in 2010. And so it was such a sad time to be sort of locked up in my apartment with everyone else celebrating and enjoying this like once in a lifetime experience, but my friends would do their best to bring it to me. So they would have like a potluck where there'd be a little Olympic party in my apartment. And they really showed up for me. My colleagues had somebody come and clean my apartment. Like I felt like through the thick of that initial period of treatment, there was so much support. But then what I realized is that as my hair started to grow back, as chemo wound down, as I was waiting for the second stage of my reconstruction, I found myself grappling with some really difficult and heavy emotions. And I felt like the support started to dry up, you know, and understandably so. People were like, cool, the worst is behind you. You know, you're starting to feel better. You must be so excited. And I wasn't excited. I felt really lost and I didn't know why. And I didn't know where to turn for support because I didn't want to go and sit in a circle and talk about cancer. I wanted to talk about like, why am I feeling so lost? Why am I having an identity crisis about my future? Like, why is this so hard to live with this fear of recurrence and to deal with these emotions of anger that I had cancer when I was young? It just felt like there wasn't, I mean, I had a great therapist, but outside of that, I didn't have peers that could relate to what I'd been through. Uh, I could so relate to what you're saying because I was young also. I was 29, about to turn 30, and felt the exact same way. Just all of a sudden, oh my gosh, look what just happened. And everyone thinks, you're doing great. You're you're fine. And they kind of drop by the wayside. Not that they mean to, but it's it's a very unsettling time. Yeah, in a time that's not really talked about, you know, people don't talk. And I I don't think it's unique to cancer. I think as humans, we struggle to show up long term for people. You think about when somebody dies, everybody shows up the funeral, but who's showing up three months, six months, a year later? Hey, I'm thinking about you. You must be still really hard, like sort of in everybody moves on with their lives. I've done it. We all do it to some extent because life gets busy. And so I think that they just really started to see that there's this challenge with helping people find a way to process what they've been through and navigate to the next chapter in their lives or the next piece of their story. Yes, you're so right. And it's such a good point about other things, because I have been in that situation where, you know, someone passes away and I'm on top of it and and, and even afterwards, but then time goes by and time goes by and then, oh, I haven't reached out to them. So it's such an important 
topic you're you're bringing up. Now you're in this position where you're you're trying to figure out your life, and and where'd you go from there? Uh, I've always been a type A personality and kind of a overachiever, sometimes to my detriment. So I decided when I was diagnosed, my oncologist didn't want me to work through treatment. And so I ended up on um, short term or long term disability, which I'm very grateful that I had the access to those resources. But I decided I wanted to write a book. And so that's what I did through treatment as I read all of these things about writing books. And I read all these memoirs. And I thought for sure I was going to write a book and it was going to get published. And I was like the first one that was telling the story of a young woman with breast cancer, which now I realize there's many, many memoirs out there with that story. But as part of that, I started a blog and started to write about this idea of what now, like how do we move forward in our lives? And I called that blog a fresh chapter. But it wasn't until six months after my double mastectomy, a few weeks before my final surgery, that I really hit my low point. I was really depressed and I couldn't figure out why. And I wanted something that could jolt me out of it. I wanted to feel like something other than cancer could be the most recent story in my life. I wanted to write about something that inspired me and I didn't feel very inspired in my life. And so I started thinking about like, what if I could do something really out of my comfort zone that would help me reclaim my story that would help me feel like cancer didn't win. And so I had this crazy idea that I wanted to volunteer in Africa, which I knew nothing about, you know, I never tra- I traveled through Europe, you know, after high school, but I'd never had the opportunity to travel to Africa, but I had dated someone from Zimbabwe. I'd met somebody who lived there. And I really started to think about like, what if I could go and do something for someone else? What if I could get out of my story? Of feeling victimized and I could feel empowered again and I could show up for other people. And so sort of on a whim, I signed up for a six-week volunteer trip in South Africa. And that was the moment that my life changed because suddenly I was excited to look forward. You know, I think when you go through treatment, looking forward is a scary thing to do because you don't know what's around the corner. And you sort of, at least for me, I stopped dreaming. I just sort of lived in the present and the present wasn't very cool. You know, it was a lot of like really painful and difficult emotions and experiences. But this sort of vision of maybe I could be someone who could volunteer in Africa. And I started fundraising to cover my costs. And then I got there and everything shifted. You know, I I met people who struggled to feed and clothe their children or who'd lost entire families to HIV AIDS. And I really saw that struggle as universal because then they heard my story of cancer and couldn't believe what I'd been through. And I could build these connections across cultures where we all had been through struggle, but we all had found resilience. And so it inspired me to think about like, what if I could start a nonprofit that could help other people find ways to reclaim their stories, to find purpose again, to see new possibilities in their lives. And that's when a fresh chapter went from being a blog to to becoming a nonprofit, or that was the genesis of that idea. And how long after you traveled to South Africa, did you start a fresh chapter, the nonprofit? That fall of 2011, I ended up coming up with this crazy idea that I would do around the world trip for six months. And I entered a contest and ended up getting some flight credits. And so what I did in the early part of 2012 is I traveled to seven different countries and really started to explore this model of what could a fresh chapter look like? Like what would the program be? Would it just be a website that matched people up to volunteer projects in different countries? Or would it be a facilitated and guided experience? And through that 
travel in 2012, I found a partner in uh, New Delhi, India called Cross-Cultural Solutions. And we started to conceive of a joint project where I would bring 12 survivors and caregivers to New Delhi for a two-week immersive experience where they would set up the volunteer projects, the cultural activities, but I would set up through a different partner, a once in a lifetime trip to the Taj Mahal so that these people could feel like beautiful things were possible in their lives after cancer. And then I would start to figure out what might be some of the discussions and activities we would do in addition to the volunteering that would help people process what they've been through and talk about where they were and really build what I wished I'd had in terms of the, that sense of community with other people who are trying to figure this out. Other people who are trying to reclaim their stories, talk about their losses, see new possibilities. And so that launched in February of 2013, our very first program. That is amazing. It's just so inspiring. And what did you learn from these people? Because I'm sure there was so much to learn. I've learned so much over these last, really, over 10 years since I first went to South Africa myself. And I've learned so much from people in other cultures, really about both what makes us different, but also those shared feelings of what makes us the same, those shared fears, you know, meeting people impacted by cancer in other countries. The emotions are very much the same. You know, their, their circumstances might be different. And unfortunately, there's not enough access in many of these countries to care. Um, and so a lot of people are diagnosed much later stage, but that sort of human struggle is very much the same. And in terms of our participants who've come from mostly North America since in the early days, now we do a lot of work with Kenyans, but I've just learned that there's so many facets to the cancer experience. And we work with people, some of whom are sort of in remission and doing really well, but also work with a lot of people who are metastatic and they'll never not be in treatment. And we've worked with people who follow traditional therapy and other people who've tried different types of healing and that there's room for all of it. Because at the end of the day, you know, our work is not about what kind of cancer you had or what your tumor was or what your side effects were. It's about like, who are you as a human? And how do you navigate these complex life questions about what now? You know, who, who am I now? Where do I go from here? And really building a sense of belonging for people from all walks of life to feel like they're able to explore those questions, but they can do it in a supportive community. It just has to be so healing, not only for them, but for you, you know, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. And I, I want to go back to what we spoke about earlier when we talked that, you know, you were kind of grieving the dreams that you had for yourself. And I think that is such an important topic to address because, again, no one talks about that. You know, there's so much grief when it comes to cancer and people kind of feel alone in that. So can you talk a little bit about that and your experience? Yeah, grief is so multi-layered, right? There's the grief, uh, at least for me, going through breast cancer, there was the grief of losing my breast, like losing a piece of my body. There was the grief when I went through treatment of losing my independence and just feeling like, you know, I could barely walk to the corner without getting winded and just feeling like I had lost my physical vibrancy. But then the bigger grief that I have grappled with for years is this dream that I had since my parents brought my baby brother home from the hospital when I was nine, this dream that I would have a baby, I would be pregnant, I would breastfeed, I would have a family. I really wanted that my whole life. And 
have had to process that grief over time. You know, I'm now 43 years old. I don't have kids. You know, I, I ended up having to decide to get my fallopian tubes removed in 2016 as a way to reduce my risk of ovarian cancer, continue to face pressure from medical professionals to get my ovaries removed. And to them, it's a very simple equation. You know, we want to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. But to me, it's not. It's a very complicated equation that relates to, you know, losing pieces of our body, but also you may, maybe losing sexual function. Like there's so many things that people do not talk about um, that I wish they did and, and that those emotions are real and complicated and that there's no one size fits all approach. I think there was a lot of pressure. Like you have the BRCA1 gene mutation, you should do X, Y, and Z and you should be happy about it. Like hooray, you know that you have this high risk. You should get your breasts removed. You should you should get your ovaries removed. And for some people that feels like the right decision. And I, and I think that's wonderful. But for me, it just felt like they were continually stripping away who I wanted to be, who I dreamt I would be. And so I had to find a way to dream a new dream for my life. Yes. And you chose not to get your ovaries removed. And is that something they check often? So I recently, I'm, I live in Los Angeles, California now. So I'm a Canadian, was very grateful to be diagnosed in Canada, have access to universal health care, but I'm now based here. And finally, I'm getting a healthcare team together here and navigating the complexities of the U.S. insurance system, which is challenging. But I have recently connected with a genetics um, counselor here. I have connected with an OBGYN that's going to start doing some screening. I had some testing done on my ovaries a few months ago, and it was all good. Um, but they're still saying you need to get them removed. And they said, you know, you're 43. You should have done it between 35 and 40. Like there's still that constant pressure. And when I decided to get my fallopian tubes out, I knew in my bones, it was time. Like I just had that gut feeling of like, I need to do this. I didn't want to do it, but I was like, I need to do this. And I followed my intuition and I'm glad I did. You know, there was, uh, the cells were unremarkable, but I haven't had that feeling yet about my ovaries. And it feels a lot like just, just a lot of pressure to be able to say, no, I'm, I know my body and I feel like I should be able to be in charge of that. And I feel like as much as there's this contradiction, you know, I'm very lucky to have access to screening and very lucky to have medical support. And it's not simple. That is so true. And, you know, you've made such a beautiful life for yourself. And you said something to me, which really resonated when we were talking earlier, you said you can have a beautiful life, even if it's not the one you imagined. And that is so uh, huge because you know, people, like you said, are grieving the loss of a body part, the, the loss of their life prior to cancer, and everything feels different. And it could still be incredible. It really can. And, you know, one of the greatest teachers in my life, I, you know, Fresh Schepter has continued to grow. Now we do a lot of programs virtually. We do a lot of work in Kenya with local Kenyans. But sort of that model that we originated in 2013 of bringing people impacted by cancer to other countries, in 2017, there was a participant who'd been living with stage four lung cancer for 12 years at the time, maybe. She was amazing, such a wise soul. And she really, on the sort of one of the first days, she's like, you know, do you have one in your life? Do you have kids? Are you dating? Like she wasn't afraid to ask all the, like all the questions, you know? And at the time it was before I've met my partner now of um, almost five years, but I was single and, 
And I said, you know what? I'm sad about it. Like I always thought that I would get married and I would have a family and yet I've been building a fresh chapter. Like I've been living out of a suitcase, traveling the world, and this has been amazing, but I never got to be a mom. And she said, you know, Terry, there's so many ways to be a mother. She said, like in many respects, you mother all of us, you know, like I'm old enough to be your mother, but you are the reason I'm standing here in Peru. You challenged me to step outside my comfort zone. You're creating an environment where I feel safe. You're challenging me to grow. Isn't that what mothers do? And it just really had such a profound impact on me because I realized that she was right. And I could mother a community and it would never be the same. And I would always have grief. And perhaps one day my partner and I will adopt maybe, but to be able to say, even if we don't, you know, I've been able to nurture over 400 people through a fresh chapter and that number continues to grow. And that's not nothing. And that's still a really beautiful life, even if it's doesn't mean I don't grieve still the life that I thought I would have. Every Christmas, I grieve that life when I don't have kids and I don't have that sort of sense of family. And it's okay. It's okay to grieve that and to be happy with the life that I have. Right. I mean, there's so much duality in life. You know, you can still grieve, but still have joy and and all those things. So I think it's just so important to acknowledge that grief. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. Now... Before we get into random round, I would just love to hear you've given such great insight, but any last advice you would give to someone who is listening now and, and maybe having a tough time? There's a couple of things that come to mind. One is thinking about people who might know about a genetic risk. You know, maybe they've had a test and, or they might have a genetic predisposition predisposition and they have kids, you know, and they're trying to figure out what to do is to really allow the person to make it their own story. You know, when I think back to who I was at 19, my father had the, the, the BRCA1, one of my maternal aunts had it. Her kids never had to do the test and they still got access to the same screening that I did. My dad was adamant that I do the test. And so they spent their 20s getting screened, but not knowing for sure if they had a high risk of cancer. I spent my 20s sort of convinced in my mind that I would get cancer. And not to say that that's that you shouldn't know, but I think I should have been more empowered 
to feel like I could make that decision. And at 19, I didn't feel, even though the counselor said I could make the decision, I didn't feel I could because there was so much pressure coming from my father about what I should do. And so I think that's just a really important thing I want to share with people who might have kids and they will be worried, understandably worried. They want their kids to be tested so that they have a sense of security over what they should do. But to not let that get, a, get in the way of that child or that person feeling like they have some sense of autonomy. That's one of the things I would say. And then the other is, you know, to anybody who's in the thick of treatment or who's grappling with a lot of difficult emotions to say you're not alone. You're not alone in these big emotions and I'm so grateful to my psychologist for all the work that I've done with her. I think therapy is an amazing gift to be able to give yourselves to do that work, but that there's also a community of other people who, you know, who also are struggling and also want to feel like, hey, cancer doesn't define me. It's possible. It's possible to find a way to reclaim my story in whatever way makes sense for me, you know, to know that those emotions are real and that it is possible to grieve and have those emotions well, to simultaneously think about what's possible for you now. Mm, that is so beautiful and such a good way to end and go into random round. So are you ready? I think I am. I think I am. <laughs> You'll do great. Freedom to you is? Time. The last show you binged and loved? The Bear. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Try to stop and really breathe and pay attention to what's happening in my body. If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? I think I would say Nelson Mandela. I really want to better understand what he withstood and how he held on to resilience and then continued to become a leader and to fight for something he believed in. Mm, I could see you... you follow him for sure. What is your favorite go-to snack? Either guacamole and corn chips or hummus with any kind of cracker. What's one simple thing that brings you joy? Spending time with someone I love. What's on your nightstand? A photo of my partner, Andrew, and I in Valle, Mexico, which was just one of our favorite places in the world, just across the border from San Diego. Um, a little tray with some jewelry and whatever book I'm reading at the time. What is your favorite form of exercise? I love to hike. I'm right there with you. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? I'm really grateful well, I'm going to say two things. I'm really grateful for the team at A Fresh Chapter that we're working together to advance this work and this vision. And I'm really grateful for my partner, Andrew, and the way that he champions my work and supports me through it and never makes me feel bad for the, the vision that I have and how proud he is of me. Mm -hmm. And it is a big vision. You're doing amazing work. Thank you so much. And how can people find you and learn more? You can find us on our website, so afreshchapter.com. You can also find us on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all with the handle afreshchapter, A-F-R-E-S-H chapter. Perfect. Thank you so much. This was so valuable, and I know it is going to just touch so many people. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation and for all you're doing to make a, an impact on the world. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.